week's TribCast, we'll talk about how President Trump's racist tweets are being interpreted by Texans and by its representatives in Congress, the latest on the migrant crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, and why Beto O'Rourke's ancestry is in the news. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. The Texas State University System, the Lamar State Colleges in Southeast Texas have reduced tuition 25%, the lowest level in 10 years. Learn more at tsus.edu. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, July 17th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by investigative editor Dave Harmon. Hello. Hello. Associate editor and demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. Hi, Alexa. And politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. As always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do that using the hashtag Tribcast. Okay, Alexa, uh, let's start with President Trump's tweets over the weekend, um, widely reviled, uh, and the ways that they sort of reverberated across uh, Texas over the last several days. Uh, why don't you start by, first of all, reminding us um, what he said, and then talk a little bit about the story that you uh, produced for us yesterday. So over the weekend, uh, Trump took to Twitter to seemingly focus on four congresswomen. It's sort of, he didn't actually name them, but it's been universally interpreted um, as four congresswomen of color who he told essentially go back to where you came from. Um, he said, you know, the countries that they are originally from, even though all but one of them were born um, in the United in the, States, actually right. in the United States, uh, but basically sort of borrowed from what's really like a well-worn racist trope that just about any person of color that you talk to has been sort of, that's been flung at them. Um, and it really sort of took off in ways that were really hurtful to people because one, they could relate personally um, but I think it also stood out in that it was sort of the first time in which there was, for the most part, this like general cataloging of it as racist. And, um, you know, I talked to Texans who have spent their entire lives sort of trying to recover from being told this, um, go back to Mexico when they were seven years old and had spent all of their life at that point in the United States. Um, and so I think it, it's it's really resonated with people who were used to hearing this from, um, you know, hateful people in their schools and or, you know, sort of on the street sometimes. Um, and they were now hearing it from their president. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's been pretty interesting to watch it sort of play out over the last couple of days and to see. Um, which elected officials were willing to go on the record, not only to condemn it, but to actually call it racist. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, obviously there's been a political backlash and not just among um, Democrats. You know, what have we seen among members of Congress? You know, I think a, a handful of Republicans weighed in, uh, Texas Republicans weighed in, but not that many. Yeah, I'm not sure. I was, was Will Hurd the first one? I think he might have been the first one out with an actual statement. I think he was. Calling it racist. Yeah, I think he was the first Texas Republican to weigh in in uh, unequivocal condemnation. Mm -hmm. We saw some other Texas members of the Texas delegation, Republican members of the Texas delegation weigh in before. Um, I don't think they were as unequivocal. Um, you know, you saw some folks, uh, you know, say the president was wrong, 
but, but yeah. <laughs> uh, right. you know, like that, you know, and try to kind of pivot to the criticism of these these uh, four members of Congress, Dem- Democratic uh, women of color that uh, Alexa mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, Heard was was pretty unequivocal. I, I think you saw also a pretty rel- a relatively unequivocal statement from Pete Olson, mm-hmm. uh, congressman uh, who's in a if he runs for re-election, is in a going to be in a very competitive race. I think he actually called for an apology. Yeah. Something like that. Yep. Um, you know, he represents Fort Bend County, which, as we've talked about many times, is inc- yeah. increasingly diverse place. Um, a place probably more so than other counties in Texas that would uh, be more sensitive to this kind of racism than other places. And then Chip Roy, I thought, I mean, it, it's pretty interesting. To me, Chip Roy continues to be a quite interesting character because he's, you know, like about as far to the right as you can get. And I actually thought he might he might have been the first Texan to yeah, come out. Yeah, but he had one of those with a big butt the in the middle. Of, the butt statement, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think overwhelmingly Rep- Texas Republicans... Um, very easily fell short of calling this racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's notable that Will Hurd, not only is he in what's considered the only swing district in Texas, but he is also one of, is, he's the only black Republican in the U.S. House. And so I think that it's pretty telling that someone in that position would go out and do that. And it's pretty telling that a lot of them haven't actually said anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, I saw some responses, uh, not limited to Texas Republicans, people saying, well, the president is not a racist. And, you know, the reporters would try and say, well, that's not what I asked. I mm-hmm. asked if the tweet itself was racist. Um, but there's just a, a, an ongoing unwillingness to call this out. And I don't think we have heard from state leadership as well. Um, I went back and looked in Governor Abbott when uh, Sid Miller called Hillary Clinton the C-word, uh, pretty quickly came out and condemned it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't actually seen that level of condemnation um, on this front. Mm-hmm. The story that you reported for us this week, you actually included um, some state legislators who had experiences with this. Um, talk about uh, what this has been like for them. Yeah, so uh, State Representative Armando Ali, who's a Democrat from Houston, uh, you know, has spent his entire life in Houston. He's very proud of being from there. And he faced it, you know, 25 years ago when he was playing high school football and on the track meet, especially when he was playing against schools that had mostly white players. Um, But it's really something that it's not that far in the past. He faced it as well when he was running for state office. Um, I don't think he's the only uh, legislator of color who has um, and basically was knocking on doors and ran into an older white man who basically said, I don't want your campaign materials. I'm not voting for a wetback and go back to your country. And uh, it's a pretty short... the the stories are all sort of slightly different, right? The the situation and how old people were. But at the end of the day, the the reason it's so hurtful is because it makes everyone feel a little less American. Mm-hmm. And it's solely on the basis of their skin color. Um, and so I think, you know, sort of the splitting of hairs over whether the media should call this racist, I think was pretty uncalled for because the only reason he was saying this to these women is because they are women of color. And it wouldn't have been so shocking if he had said it about white women, but he wouldn't have anyway. Right. And so... Um, They're too uh, critical to his voting base. Well, yeah. and, and so I think, you know, I don't know where we sort of go from here on this front, but I think heading into the 2020 election, it'll be interesting to see how this moment sort of comes back um, and how people remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, you know, it's a it's a moral situation. Uh, but when you move on to the politics of it, it's just it's this kind of stuff that just is going to 
you know, continue to kill Texas Republicans in a state like Mm -hmm. Texas. One of the things we saw across the country last year, and I think is going to be a a dominant theme this year in in federal races, at least in Texas, is these voters who accept that under President Trump, you know, there have been some some good things when it comes to uh, regulation. You know, they think the economy is doing well personally, but they they can't stomach despite those good things. These are, you know, kind of these these disaffected Republicans. They can't stomach uh, despite all those good things that they're seeing, voting for a president who behaves like this. And this was just another example of that. Right. We saw uh, an Elsa Alcala this week. Right. Right. The uh, former uh, Court of Criminal Appeals, um, you know, judge who's a, you know, was a Republican appointed by Rick Perry, basically coming out and saying, like, I can no longer vote Republican in an environment like this because of this president and this kind of, you know, rhetoric. And she was one of very few women of color who have been in those judicial seats, largely because Republicans have appointed them. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, um, so Alexa, obviously, like, there's no way to get around um, an issue like this feeling personally personal for you. I mean, we were having a conversation the other day about how, you know, around um, the Kavanaugh hearings, this was something like for, you know, women journalists working in newsrooms who's, who'd had experiences like, um, like hers, you know, these they're really jarring. How do you do your job? How do you operate as a reporter uh, in an environment where like we're experiencing sort of day in and day out these, uh, this messaging from the very top um, that is, you know, hurtful. I mean, I I think it's two parted, right? Like there's, there's a part of this in which you have to continue to operate in the sort of journalistic framework and structure that we create um, in which our job is just to provide readers with the information they need to be well-informed and be able to be productive members of society in that way. But I think there, the way ideally you can instead channel it is to make sure that when we are reporting on it, that readers know exactly why this was problematic and why this was racist and understand it from that perspective. Um, I, I think if we operated in a world in which that was not widely accepted as racist, that would be a lot harder um, to that would be an environment that would be a lot harder to work in. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. Um, Dave, let's pivot to uh, the border. Uh, obviously, you've been editing a whole bunch of investigative and uh, hard-hitting work out of the um, uh, migrant crisis for us. Uh, give us the sort of biggest headlines from this past week, starting with the Trump administration's move that's likely to face a legal challenge uh, that will make seeking asylum like next to impossible for Central Americans. Yeah, this is kind of the latest big bombshell policy change that has come out of Washington around asylum. Uh, They all seem aimed at, for all intents and purposes, stopping asylum claims because that has been the largest component of the, the large group of immigrants that we've seen coming to the border, mostly from Central America, but uh, also quite a few from Africa, Cuba, Brazil, Venezuela. There's a lot of places with, with political unrest and crime and poverty. And they're, they're coming and they're presenting themselves at our ports of entry and asking for asylum. And so the issue is this particular policy would exclude those people because why? It would require anyone who wants to request asylum to first request it in basically the first country they come to. Uh, so, for example, if I'm, if I'm leaving Honduras or El Salvador, this policy uh, is telling me that I should apply for asylum in Guatemala. If I'm coming from Guatemala, I should apply for asylum in Mexico. And 
the policy would use that to deny asylum claims to anyone who didn't apply for asylum somewhere else. And so if you're traveling through multiple countries to try to get to the United States, basically you're disqualified. Yeah. The, I think the logic is if you are a, a refugee, you should be seeking shelter in the first safe place. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously there's a lot of debate over how safe right. Guatemala and Mexico sure. are for Degrees of safe, yeah. Exactly. Or like requiring someone fleeing El Salvador to then claim asylum or seek asylum in a country that other people are fleeing from as right. well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. right, exactly. And, and of course, Mexico and Guatemala really want no part of this. Right. Uh, there's a designation called safe third country. Um, and the U.S., I think, has that agreement with Canada right now. The Trump administration has been negotiating with Guatemala to designate itself as a safe third country. That fell apart this week. Uh, so Mexico and Guatemala really don't want to, to do this. But the diplomats in those countries are saying, if the Trump administration does this, we really have no recourse. Right. And so the recourse here, I guess, could potentially be a legal challenge. What are we hearing about? I mean, how likely is this? Has this already taken effect or how likely is it to withstand a legal challenge? Well, you know, we're trying to figure out if it's actually being implemented mm-hmm. because the administration announced this on Monday. They said it would take effect yesterday, Tuesday, which is right. Tuesday, <laughs> which is very fast. Um, I've read reports that the the folks who handle asylum claims have been given no instruction on this. And yesterday the ACLU and other groups went into a federal court in San Francisco and sued to stop the policy. Uh, We're waiting to see what the judge in San Francisco decides. And uh, we're also waiting to see if the policy is actually being implemented because that happens kind of out of, out of the public view. Right. Well, uh, another story this week, our investigative reporter, Jay Root, had an important story about uh, illness and dehydration at the Texas-Mexico border and how Border Patrol agents are really seeing like a huge spike in these conditions among their arrivals. What do the numbers show and why are we seeing, like, why suddenly would this look so different from a healthcare standpoint? Uh, yeah, Jay found out, uh, and this was reporting from the Rio Grande Valley mm-hmm. sector of the Border Patrol, not not the entire Texas-Mexico border but the number of cases of this, it's, it's basically extreme dehydration and exhaustion, which can lead to kidney failure, and it can be a life-threatening condition. Those cases have doubled uh, this year over last year, and there's still a couple of months left in the fiscal year. So, I mean, what the medical professionals are saying is that people are exhausting themselves during the journey. On the journey. So right. by the time they get to our border, they're in bad shape. And we have seen deaths on the Rio Grande. Uh, there was a woman with, I think it was three small children. They all died. And the the thinking is that, that it was from uh, exhaustion and de- dehydration. It mm-hmm. wasn't a drowning incident. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just, they're just out of gas by the time they get to, to our border. And then what we've seen is because there's not enough shelter space, they're being housed in Border Patrol processing facilities, which are, you know, in in the police reporter world, that we call them holding tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not designed to hold people for extended periods. And so you're cramming a lot of people into spaces that are not designed to hold people, and sick people are getting sicker. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
All right. Thank you for that uh, not very uplifting uh, topic here. This is like a tribcast, tri <laughs> <cast laughs> like death and despair, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, but before we do, I'd like to thank two more tribcast sponsors. Uh, the Association of Electric Companies of Texas, your resource for understanding the electric markets in Texas. Get an overview with our Electricity 101 at aect.net. And UT Southwestern Medical Center, which is combating mental illness with a simple screening that could be part of your next physical. See how on tribtalk.org. Okay, Patrick, uh, another sensitive topic this week. Uh, Beto O'Rourke disclosing with his wife that they have descendants who were slaveholders. What prompted this uh, seemingly random disclosure? Yeah, so he put up um, a post on Medium, which is kind of his favorite journaling pl journaling uh, platform. Where he chronicles on, <laughs> his runs. <laughs> on Sunday yes. night, uh, making this uh, disclosure and kind of offering some thoughts on on how he, it adds kind of a, additional urgency to his, uh, you know, policy views to, to address racial inequality and racial uh, injustice in the country. Um, around the same time, there was a story published in The Guardian that made the same revelation. The Guardian story said that O'Rourke wasn't aware of this ancestry um, until they brought it to him. So it stands to reason that the, the Medium post was a, a reaction to or trying to get ahead of that, that Guardian story. And um, politically, I thought it was smart. It worked. A lot of people, um, you know, this is kind of like political communications 101, trying to get ahead of a story with your own kind of take on it. Um, and a lot more people were sharing that medium post and praising and commenting on that medium post than they were uh, talking yeah. about that Guardian story. And, and to be clear, the Guardian story wasn't necessarily a negative story for him. It was just shining light on his his, his ancestry. I thought it was a little negative. There I was mean, a line in it that was like, he has not talked about this before, yeah. but he didn't actually know about it. Before. Right. I mean, they say basically that when they approached him with this revelation that he had no idea. And the, to me, the tone of the article was like, how could he not have had an idea? We found this with a simple search on sure. Ancestry.com. And like, if you're doing oppo research, it seems like, you know, Somebody like Beto O'Rourke would have. Sure, well, he, where you want to know. What I was trying to say is he he participated in the Guardian story. I, I mm -hmm. wasn't trying oh, to. Totally, you yeah. know, again, they were obviously trying to get ahead of it as a communication strategy, but at the same time, they participated with the Guardian mm -hmm. story and weren't trying to necessarily, um, you know, run away from what the Guardian was was bringing to them. Yeah. Um, but you know, it definitely speaks to the larger focus uh, on race in this Democratic primary and, and on elements mm -hmm. of race that we haven't really seen in the political mainstream before. I mean, in this throughout this primary, we've seen a discussion about reparations, right. um, which as far as I'm concerned, you know, in, in my, uh, you know, <laughs> several years following politics very closely has not been a part of the, the political mainstream on either side. Um, and in fact, it was that discussion about reparations that O'Rourke was engaged in that I think sparked the Guardian's original interest in tracking down his, his ancestors. Huh, interesting. I, I do think it was sort of a study in political contrast from when he was provided with that information versus when Mitch McConnell had been, because his response, if I'm remembering correctly, was basically to say, well, so was Obama. Right. Um, and I think for O'Rourke, it was definitely... Owning it. Owning it in a way that I think the people who may be considering whether to vote for him or at least those who already support him could sort of process it with him um, rather than sort of lashing out in the way that Mitch McConnell did, obviously with a different sort of audience and political base. Right. You could respond to this revelation, you know, in two ways. You could respond to it as like, this is a silly low blow. Like, obviously this is, you know, what it's like his great, 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 great grandfather or something like that. You know, this is so many generations out. Like, why are you trying to make an issue of it? Or you can do what he did, which is basically turn it around and say like, yeah, this gives me even more urgency, you know, 
to address this and probably given his role on the campaign trail and like how he speaks about this, you know, it's the, the messaging is feels very, you know, lucid. So, yeah. And I, I think Patrick's right in that the amount of conversation um, we've seen in the political mainstream when it comes to race, it, it feels different. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's still a long ways ago from being sort of a comprehensive uh, back and forth and constructive dialogue about racial disparities and the underlying issues um, for those disparities and sort of the institutional problems that have carried over for generations. Mm-hmm. But it does feel different. And I wonder for for longtime voters how that sort of sits with them, knowing, you know, the polling that we've seen in Texas of how many people don't consider the state's racial diversity as a cause for optimism. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I'm curious to see how this if anything, if, if 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 in any way it'll play out with some of the voters here in Texas, right? I mean, does that does that this fact basically play in any particular way among voters of color? I I think is an interesting question. I mean, I think most people who prob- who support Beto probably you know certainly would not hold against him something that was four generations in his family's past, but but maybe you know tonally that sets a different gives provides a different feeling for people of color who. I think because he owned it and yeah, was right. transparent about it, at least once it was brought to his attention, we can obviously have a debate about whether he sh- should have known about it, should have vetted himself on it beforehand. But I think that that certainly helped him uh, politically. And um, as part of this larger uh, discussion about race in this primary, there's been, you've seen a lot of pressure, um, and I think most would say rightfully so, on the, on the white uh, candidates. Mm. Uh, to be self-aware about their privilege, about the advantages they've enjoyed in life that others haven't. And and, and work, to, to be fair, has has done that from the beginning of this well, sure, primary. This you know, is the kind take of the latest knee, yeah, installment. The in sure, yeah, yeah. even go back to a Senate race. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a, a new uh, kind of line of, of rhetoric for him in that, in that right. regard. Well, let's talk about, uh, other than this uh, issue, how he's doing out on the campaign trail. Um, you know, the second quarter is up. Uh, Patrick, I'd love to hear uh, on some of the sort of more significant fundraising numbers starting with uh, O'Rourke. Yeah, so he raised $3.6 million in the second quarter. Uh, a pretty disappointing figure uh, considering kind of the high expectations that he had when he entered this primary in mid-March. If you recall back then, he raised over $6 million, I believe, in in twenty his first 24 hours. Um, and then he raised went on to raise, I think, a total of over $9 million in his first 18 days. Mm-hmm. And so given the fundraising powerhouse uh, that he was in that opening few weeks of his campaign, this is certainly a fall from grace, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, put it, uh, to put it lightly. Um, in terms of where he fit into the broader 2020 field when it came to second quarter fundraising, um, we really saw the field separate between the haves and the have-nots. You basically had a group of several candidates that all raised, you know, $10 million or, or well over $10 million. Pete Buttigieg obviously led the field with, I think, $25 million. And then you saw this group that O'Rourke fit into, and he was in the upper echelons of it, but it was definitely the latter back of the field um, that was all in the low single digits of millions of dollars raised. Um, and he has work to do. And his campaign put out a, a memo. I mean, they clearly anticipated this was a number that was going to be viewed as a disappointment. And they had a, a memo from the campaign manager ready to go in which, uh, you know, she definitely tried to put a positive uh, face on the numbers, uh, but still was pretty frank in saying that, you know, if we don't raise more this quarter and the third quarter, we're going to need to make some adjustments. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not all terrible news for him. He just learned uh, yesterday, Tuesday, that he's going to he's qualified for the, the September debate, debate in Houston. 
which the other Texan in the race, Julian Castro, has not qualified for yet. And st- uh, talk a little bit about Castro. So where are his numbers and what does he need to sure, qualify? He, he raised, he disclosed raising $2.8 million so in the second quarter. not as much quarter. as Beto. Not as much as Beto, but different expectations surrounding him. I mean, right. he obviously has, you know, kind of run in or work shadow for much of this race up until recently with that kind of breakout performance at mm-hmm. the debate. Um, and the debate really proved to be a critical moment for his fundraising, at least according to his campaign. Uh, when you look at that $2.8 million, his campaign says they raised $1.7 million in the like two and a half months before the debate. And then they raised $1.1 million in like the four days after the debate. Right. Um, and so that I think just gives you, as just a broader commentary mm-hmm. on the field, that gives you a feel for a glimpse at how critical these de- these campaigns are approaching these debates. Because if right. you if you do if you do it right, it could really be beneficial. Um, at least yeah. with the fundraising, Castro hasn't really seen his poll numbers rise since that debate. But clearly, the fundraising um, took off after right. the debate. I think it's interesting the debate wise. You know, I followed Bethel work when he was running for Senate and have seen him sort of interact with crowds and his personality just really does not translate on the stage. Mm-hmm. And for how high the stakes have been seemingly from the campaigns going into these debates, it just, it's not quite there in the same way. Um, and yet so much depends on these debates. Those performances, that yeah. national exposure. I know. Well, I mean, and what's fascinating to me is that like both of these numbers that we're just talking about right now, like pale in comparison to what Texas Governor Greg Abbott brought in in what the like, you know, two weeks after the end of the legislative session, right? Yeah, part of that is uh, the presidential candidates have the federal campaign finance limits state uh, here at the state level. We have no campaign finance limits. And so that enables give whatever you, know, you want. It's, <laughs> it's really the Wild West in that, in that regard. Uh, but Ab- under that under that system, Abbott did raise over $12 million in the last 14 days of June. And we use that time period because there's this fundraising blackout uh, in the days before, during, and then in the days after the legislative session. That blackout happened to end on June 17th this year. And so that gave uh, Abbott and other state lawmakers and officials until June 30th, aka 14 days to raise all that money. Um, this was the highest uh, fundraising haul that Abbott has had in that kind of post-session period. So people um, like a kumbaya session? Is that the message exactly, we're supposed to make? Yeah. <laughs> and, and perhaps most notably, once we actually got the report um, you, you saw that he got uh, two $1 million checks um, from donors who've been very generous to him in the past. Uh, one of them is is a couple from the Hill Country. Uh, Michael Porter is, is the husband of Blanky on the wife's name. Um, but they had previously given Abbott another uh, $1 million check after the 2017 session. So wow. they're uh, obviously very uh, satisfied with the, <laughs> the governor's yeah, performance. Yeah, seriously. Yep. I wish I had a million dollars to hand off that way. <laughs> I know, seriously. Um, so what is Cornyn up to then compared to his most serious challenger? Yeah, so over the second quarter, uh, Cornyn raised about $2.5 million. Um, his most serious challenger, MJ Hager, she announced a, a little bit a couple weeks into the quarter, so it's not the exact same time frame, uh, but she raised just a little bit over $1 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he clearly uh, bested her in the money race, even if you kind of standardize it for you know how much they raise per day right. and, and whatnot. Um, and, and perhaps more importantly, he now has over, I think, $9 million uh, cash on hand, so money yep. saved up to spend on his reelection race. Um, she has about six hundred thousand dollars and a so, primary to worry about, and 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 yeah. a, a what's very likely to be uh, a crowded primary. Um, and so, you know, look, I, I think that as we discussed perhaps in the last Trumpcast, the one million dollars that that uh, she raised definitely establishes her as a serious candidate. Um, but as we've known from the beginning of this, Cornyn isn't you know uh, slouching 
and he's been working really hard to sh- at least show that he's taken this race seriously early on in the, in the fundraising uh, reflects that. Mm-hmm. One more fundraising question I want to ask you about. Uh, we had news a couple of weeks ago about former Speaker Joe Strauss forming a PAC. Uh, now we get wind of one from the current Speaker, Dennis Bonin. What is he doing? Yeah, he's creating a PAC uh, that he's uh, initially funding with $3 million from his own campaign account. If you recall, he raised over $4 million late last year when it became apparent he was going to be the speaker. So this is kind of coming out of that that, helps. that yeah. pool of money. Um, starting with $3 million is called Texas Leads. And um, an important distinction to- A better name than Joe Strauss's, I think. Texas Forever. Texas Forever. You know yeah. yeah. If you're a Friday Night Lights fan. <laughs> yeah. Texas Leads. Yeah. Uh, and uh, most importantly, this PAC, uh, his camp, his team says it's going to be exclusively focused on reelecting Republican incumbents. And so one thing that we saw toward the end of the session and the days after the session is Bonin was emphatic that he doesn't want members campaigning against uh, other members. So, you know, Republicans working to unseat Democrats and vice versa, Democrats mm-hmm. working to unseat Republicans. And so this PAC is consistent with that, uh, you know, policy, you know, informal policy that he's set. Um, but obviously only helping Republican incumbents. Exactly. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's going to be no, uh, you know, no offensive plays. This PAC mm-hmm. is not going to support uh, Democratic challenger. I'm sorry, uh, Republican challengers to Democratic incumbents. And uh, should we assume that the PAC will not be helping uh, Republicans who Dennis Bonin doesn't like? <laughs> incumbents you he know, doesn't like? Sure. It remains yeah. to be seen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, you know, as the expenditures come, we'll be able to pick up on some trends. Um, I thought it was interesting. One of the things we also learned from this most recent round of campaign finance reports is that at the end of June, uh, Bonin's campaign uh, sent in-kind contributions for polling, basically lent polling mm-hmm. services to about a dozen Republican incumbents. And, and some of them were in the the members of the House Freedom Caucus, which mm-hmm. has been a thorn in the side of, of leadership in the past. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there are folks that he doesn't like who may not get the, the most support, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll, that'll take shape, obviously. We've got quite a, quite a bit of time between now and the primaries. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all. That's all the time we have this week. And thanks to the Texas State University System, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, UT Southwestern Medical Center, and the Association of Electric Companies of Texas, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Alexa, Patrick, Dave, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.